This is Book TV's Afterwards. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, this week we're reaching back into the Book TV archives. This week our guest is former FBI Director Andrew McCabe. He talked about his career, the FBI, and his firing from the Bureau. He was interviewed by New York Times reporter Adam Goldman, Pulitzer Prize winner for investigative reporting. Hi, I'm Adam Goldman. I'm a reporter with the New York Times. Good to see you, Adam. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Uh, we know a lot about you. You've been on a uh, book tour, or, or some I of your have. critics might say a redemption tour. <laughs> and um, and you, we know a fair amount about, fair amount about you, that you, you were in the FBI for, what, close to 20 years? 21 years. And you held up a whole bunch of different positions. You tackled Russian organized crime in New York. You did terrorism in 2006, and you That's rose right. to the highest ranks of the Bureau, to the deputy director. That's right. Until... Um, until you were fired by uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions for what they say was a lack of, what the Inspector General says was a lack of candor in interviews. That's uh, correct. In a report. Um, much has been talked about uh, in terms of this book. You've done a lot of interviews, so mm-hmm. um, I thought I'd take a shot at, at uh, maybe asking some, some new questions. Sure. Uh, but you, before we get into the meat of this book, I, I guess I had a question about writing because I, I do a lot of writing. Okay. I do, do sometimes I do it every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder, you know, how long did it take you to, to write this book, and you know what was the process like? Because you're obviously a first time author. Mm-hmm. Um, you clearly wrote a lot of FBI uh, uh, interview memos, known as the right. 302. But That's this right. is something a little <laughs> different. This process is a little different. So walk me through how you actually tackled this this particular project. Yeah. So basically crashed on this project and did nothing but this for for many, many months last summer. Um, So shortly after my firing, um, I started thinking about how to best kind of um, balance and understand and talk about my entire experience in the FBI. I was really concerned by what I'd felt were um, the kind of corrosive impact that these false narratives about the FBI uh, the corrosive impact that those narratives are having on the people of the FBI and their ability to do their work. And I felt like if people understood really more about the organization, who we are, how we work, what kind of people are drawn to the FBI, and most importantly, how we make the decisions we do, that they're based on specific legal authorities and uh, priorities and policies given to us by the Department of Justice, not based on politics and personal preference, that sort of thing. So that was really um, kind of the impulse that brought me to the project. Um, after kind of uh, um, securing the support of, of course, St. Martin's Press, who's published the book, and they've been great, um, I started working with uh, a team, uh, a co-author and an editor who, work, who I worked very closely with uh, on the project. So literally, we spent the entire summer every day together, either in my house or in a house he was staying he had moved to for the summer and lived uh, nearby, you know, shoulder to shoulder, sitting at the dining room table with each of us had a couple of laptops out. Um, and we spent the entire summer doing it, researching, talking, writing, editing, handing different pieces, different sections, different building blocks back and forth. 
Were you able to actually go back into the FBI and review any of your notes or any of your materials you had left behind, or were you basically having to reconstruct this from memory and obviously from newspaper articles and, and, and books that had been written on subjects you were, you, were, uh, you were writing about? So I had no access to any of my materials from my time at the FBI. All of my notes and memos and um, all that stuff uh, remains in the custody of the FBI, so it was really from memory. Um, but there is, as you know, uh, a lot of it due to your, your own work and your uh, paper's work, there is an incredibly robust um, factual record available in uh, open source and, and publicly available material. And so we spent a lot of time reading some of that as well. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a real process. Uh, because of the sensitivities of some of the information that you were exposed to or you handled at the FBI, did that... Did you make a decision while writing this book you weren't going to include it in it, and why? Oh, I absolutely made decisions to avoid talking about things, certainly anything that's classified. So I tried to refer only to those things that I could source to uh, open source um, materials. Um, and, if, and beyond just classified, you know, we are concerned at the FBI about what we would call sensitive information, right? So. Something from a criminal case, for example, it may not be classified, the name and identity of an informant or a source, but, but it's highly sensitive. We would never want to talk about that person in a way that identifies them and, and could, um, could put them in, in danger or, or jeopardize their, um, you know, their relatives and their families. So I definitely made a, a concerted effort to avoid putting material like that in the book. And then, of course, I went through an extensive process with the FBI, which they call pre-publication review, we went over everything that's in the book um, and went through a kind of a robust exchange about what I could include and, and what they wanted me to take out. Did they push back on publicly an open source material, things that appear on the Washington Post or the New York Times? You know, they, um, the way the process works is they take an initial review of the manuscript and they highlight everything that they think is sensitive or classified. Um, and they send that back to you and say, we think that you should consider redacting these things. And then you have the opportunity to go back and say, well, this paragraph that you've redacted on page 25, um, here's where you can see this has been publicly acknowledged by, the, by some government official or some, some element of the government and, and published um, in open source material. And once they see that proof, those indications, they'll, re, you know, they'll retract their request that that, that be uh, redacted. So that went on for literally four months. Um, uh, let's let's jump right into let's jump right into the book. Um, about midway through the book, you you write that quote as a matter of policy, the FBI does everything possible not to influence elections. In two thousand and sixteen, it seems we did. Uh, it seems to, for uh, for an FBI agent, you a former FBI agent, you seem to be having a moment of reflection. I'm not sure I uh, actually encounter that too much from FBI agents. <laughs> uh, so, the, so I mean, this almost sounds like a, a regret, an acknowledgement that the FBI, I mean, really screwed the pooch at the end, and we are here now because of what happened then. What's your thought about? It? Is that what you were? Is, it, is regret too strong for you? Because how would you describe yeah, that? I mean, maybe screw the pooch is a little too strong for me. Um, but no, I think you, you know, you're, you're definitely onto something there. Um, I did spend a lot of time thinking about the decisions we'd made and the reasons behind those decisions and how we thought about those issues at the time. And with the benefit of hindsight, I tried to be honest in my own reassessment of did we get it right or did we not? 
you know, the two biggest issues there are, of course, um, Jim's announcement in Jim Comey's announcement in July about our conclusion of the case in a very public way that departed from precedent. Uh, And then, of course, Jim's decision in October to notify Congress about the reopening of the case because of the uh, emails on the Wiener laptop. Um, I very much agreed with Jim's decision to announce the case as we did in July. Um, In retrospect, I think that we probably got that wrong. I think that we underestimated how hard it would be to convince people of just how good of an investigation we had done and how our conclusion was the, was the independent and correct and fair result. I still believe all those things, but I think we underestimated how deeply people would l- cling to their political perspectives rather than listening to us with an objective ear. And I think we all were overconfident in Jim's ability to convince people that we had done a good job. Um, and, I, and I blame myself for that miscalculation. Um, I go through a, a, a few paragraphs in the book where I, th- where I talk about, like, should I have known better from my own experiences on the Hill, from my own, um, from the scars of enduring the multiple Benghazi reviews and, and all those, um, you know, those forays into investigations that were charged politically, um, should I have concluded that this is not possible uh, for us to, to really convince anyone that this is the right result here? Should we have just been quiet, reported our findings to the department, and let the department kind of step in front of the guns and take that hit? Um, so that's, that's kind of how I, how I look at that in retrospect. It's interesting because you, in the book, you mention an agent uh, named Adam Lee, and he was the former special agent in charge, the top agent in Richmond, Virginia, who that's recently right. retired. And, you know, I, and, and you think about somebody like Adam Lee's experience. He's a career public corruption investigator, right? Sure. And those people understand. People who do public corruption for a living, whether the agents or the prosecutors, understand do nothing to upset an election. And it, I guess it had me thinking, you think the Bureau would benefit more by having, having people, more people like Adam Lee, more people exposed to public corruption, more people doing politically sensitive investigations on the seventh floor. I mean, we know post 9-11, the Bureau is very terrorism heavy, right? Sure. You look at people, you talk yeah. about your experiences in ITOS, International Terrorism, yeah. Terrorism Operations Section. You know, uh, you know, those people have risen to the top of the Bureau. But do you, do you think now, in retrospect, the, you know, the Bureau needs to sort of look at the way and the people it puts on the seventh floor because there's, so there is more varied experience? in terms of you know, people who have handled these political census cases? Because now we've seen these cases are the kryptonite to the Bureau. Now, you've known that, but, and the Bureau has always known that, but it seems like the Bureau sort of forgot that for a period of time. Well, look, you, you raise a great point. And is it ideal to have that sort of diverse experience, um, all, all the broad spectrum of diverse experience in the Bureau represented across the seventh floor at all times? Absolutely. That's what we would prefer to have. But like every institution, um, when those critical moments come and you're selecting, you know, the next EAD for national security or the next, um, I'm sorry, I'm using acronyms here, the next executive assistant director for, you know, the criminal uh, side of the house, you are not, there, there's always, by definition, a fairly limited pool of people who have had the requisite experience, time in, perspectives, abilities um, to serve in those roles. And so... Like every organization, you try to make the best uh, decisions at, at the time with the, with the people that you have before you. 
Um, should more emphasis be put on, should the same sort of emphasis be put on kind of um, expertise in navigating politically sensitive matters? I mean, it's certainly something that probably uh, Director Ray and, and the other leadership on the seventh floor are thinking about in maybe a different way than we did um, you know, a few years ago. What's your, what's your opinion, speaking of Ray, what's your opinion of Ray? I know he, he wanted you, you write in the book that he wanted you to, to, he wanted you to step down under circumstances you didn't believe were, were quite accurate. You know, walk me through a little bit. Was this face-to-face? Was this on the phone? Like... So, you know, I, I have some, uh, of course, disagreements with Director Ray over how, um, how I left the Bureau, and I probably should leave that, leave that at that for now because of the uh, ongoing matters that continue, the investigations that spun from the IG report, my own civil suit that I'll be bringing in the next couple, couple of weeks, um, but I did have the opportunity to work with Director Ray for several months before I left. Um, I find him to be uh, you know, hes a very smart guy. He's a hardworking guy. Um, I think he's committed to the FBI and to um, you know, making the FBI as strong and, and, and effective as he possibly can. Um, he has a very different approach to leadership, um, I think, than I do, certainly than Jim Comey did. Um, and so, you know, look, I, I hope that he is successful. And as a former FBI agent, you want the organization to be in good hands. And, and uh, no reason to believe they're not. Uh, former FBI agents have put it this way, that uh, Mueller didn't talk enough. Comey talked too much. <laughs> and R- Director Ray has got to find himself somewhere in the middle in these politically perilous um, times. I think that's accurate. I think he needs to find that balance. Um, I'm not sure that he's found it yet. But uh, he's only been on the job for about a year, so we'll see how that goes. Um, uh, in a chapter titled uh, Enterprise Theory, you, you mentioned informants. It seems like a reference to Chris Steele, uh, the former MI6 officer who worked with the FBI, and perhaps another informant whose identity was later leaked along with uh, Chris Steele. Mm-hmm. Um, a few things. You, you seem to take a shot at Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, in this chapter. You say, quote, not giving up your people, this is important, end quote. Um, it sounds like you're angry that Seal's name leaked and, and you know, certain information about ongoing investigations was provided to Congress. Talk, talk a little bit more fully about w- what that means and w- sure. w- what exactly you're, you're, you're getting at there. In yeah. terms of providing information to Congress, which mm-hmm. has a legitimate oversight function. Of course they do. And um, look, the FBI needs oversight. We need oversight from the department. We need oversight from the Hill. We need oversight from places that aren't the FBI, right? That's, I don't think anybody would dispute that. Um, but in the wake of the conclusion of the Clinton email case, um, we received an overwhelming number of requests from the Hill. It was, they were the most kind of invasive and comprehensive requests for not just our conclusions, not even just our this investigative is before, reports. This is before Rod. This is before Rod comes That's right. On. But really, this is the beginning of that process, right? right? right. So the next thing you know... It's so the summer of 16. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah summer of 16, fall, fall of right. 16, into the end of 16, beginning of 17, and it really continued and built all through 2017. Um, we were 
struggling to comply with these incredibly expansive requests we got from the Hill and a very granular information, raw investigative information, the types of things that are not normally provided, you know, not normally shared outside the organization, outside the FBI, for very good reasons, to protect people's identities, the identities of employees, of sources, um, all sorts of things like that. Um, the Department of Justice took a very um, expansive view, an unprecedented view of what we should be turning over to Congress. And certainly the Deputy Attorney General, uh, Rod, Rosen, <clears throat> excuse me, Rod Rosenstein, was, was um, central to those decisions. Um, why, men- did Rod, why do you think Rod did that? Why did Rod, why did they, you know, the... The, the FISA applications were originally given to um, Senator Grassley and, and Senator Feinstein mm-hmm. early in 17. But that was to get Rod, that was to condition to get Rod Rosenstein confirmed, it's our understanding. That's correct. Um, so that, that wall comes down there. Why do, you think Rod, why do you think Rod relented going forward in providing Congress this granular information on informants and other, and other yeah. issues? I can't put myself in Rod's shoes. I can't tell you what he was thinking. Um, I can tell you that we were all under an enormous amount of pressure from the Hill, pressure that was politically motivated and political and intended for political results. Um, and so we found ourselves handing over information that we don't normally share. And it was something that caused many of us great concern, um, but it continued and increased during that period of time that I've identified for you. So you end up with you know, in a very public fight over uh, things like, are we going to protect the actual identity of an, inf- of an informant or a source in an important and ongoing matter? Uh, Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, has weighed in uh, on this issue. Okay. For two years, I sounded the alarm about DOJ's deviation from just that principle as it turned over hundreds of thousands of pages in closed or ongoing investigations. I warned, that, I warned that DOJ would need to live by this precedent, and it will. He's referring to the Mueller report. That's right. Do you, do you, think, DOJ, you think DOJ now has a le- legitimate argument to withhold the Mueller report from Congress? I think that uh, Representative Schiff is exactly right. This is exactly the scenario that we worried about at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017. We were our, um, some of us in the FBI were arguing strenuously over this exact fact. Like, if we do this now, we'll never be able to walk this dog back. You can't wean Congress off of this sort of response. Um, And I think that the department is going to have a tough time justifying doing anything different in this case. Uh, We talked briefly about some of the things you didn't include in your book, Mm -hmm. um, mainly the Rod's reference to, you know, using the 25th Amendment Um, to get uh, removed the president from office, and also a comment he made in two meetings on May 16, 2017, about, uh, you know, wearing a wire. Um, But, you know, one thing you don't write about, and I I believe you, in fact, signed it at one point, was the Carter Page FISA application. You know, we've had a memo on that, and much of that has been made, made public. I guess two questions. Why didn't you get at that in your book? And two, um, you signed this, right? Mm -hmm. You put your name on this thing. Um, and there's been a dispute about how much of the uh, uh, Chris Steele dossier, right, the information mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this ex-MI6 informant generated and provided to the FBI that contributed to this investigation. 
I, 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 I won't, so those are my two. So how much of how much of this deal actually actually contributed to the FISA application? And in your opinion, do you think that got it over the hump? Because there are others. There are line people at the National Security Law Branch at the FBI who handle these FISAs, including the the the, the line supervisor who 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 believe that they didn't need this dossier to to get mm-hmm. to get over the hump. And do you think that you um, you adequately informed the court about? Uh, about the about the about the the origins of the FISA, the origins of the Steele dossier, yep. and uh, do you think Stu Evans, who's the chief of the intelligence officer, when he took it to the court, was fully informed? I do. I do believe that we adequately notified the FISA court of the information we were using and what we thought about that information. Um, I think the the in fact in my experience with FISA packages I've never seen a footnote like the one we included in that package specifically for that purpose this is like a foot this is like on page 16 it's or it's about a page and a half long footnote, footnote, right. footnote, footnote yeah. itself it goes into great detail about our previous relationship what we thought of the information we were getting uh, from him and kind of where how we understood his involvement or interest in 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 this stuff that was in the uh, in the FISA package. So I do think we represented it adequately. I know that's a matter that's currently under investigation. Be anxious to see well, what they have to say about it. Well, the buck stops with the chief of intelligence at the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. That's the the penultimate person, right? Mm-hmm. Stu Evans. That's right. Uh, did in your conversations with Stu, did did the did the Justice Department did that office did you you reached a an accommodation with him, right, in terms of transparency, right? Well, I'm not going to go into the details of the right. conversations I had with Stu. Um, but at the end of the day, we put forth a package that, to my understanding, people in my building and the department were satisfied with. So to the extent that there were any concerns about how we represented what we knew about the informant right. and his potential, um, how he came involved in, in acquiring this information and, and uh, what his background might might say about his involvement in that collection. Um, I think everyone was satisfied that we had represented that accurately and adequately in the package. Um, the court was obviously satisfied. They signed it what three or four times. I but think. there were th- there was one right. There were three renewals, including by Rod, the last one. That's right. In the May, initiation of, and three right. renewals, one of which I signed, it took place after the director had been fired. And when you signed that FISA application, how extensive with your vetting? I mean, clearly you were involved in a lot of, con- a lot of the conversations that were taking place. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are there are text messages, I believe, between Lisa Page and, and Peter Strzok that talk about pushing this thing through. Right. You guys had a lot of concerns. What was there? Why did you think there was urgency to get the push this thing through on October, what was it, 2021, 2000? What, what was the urgency there? You know, there's always an urgency yeah. about getting uh, surveillance in place. You're conducting an investigation. You have probable cause to believe someone's right. an agent of a foreign power, which that was our, that was our feeling yeah. at the time, and the court obviously validated that, uh, that assessment. Um, so you want to get, you don't, you know, surveillance, electronic surveillance right. is not a, like a lazy, we'll get to it when we get to it thing. You do it because you think you need it then. So this was um, an approach that we felt was necessary and important to move the case forward. Do you find it extraordinary that you're talking about electronic surveillance on American citizen and public? It is un, it's unbelievable to me. Um, and we're talking about it, of course, because, as I'm sure the viewers understand, the entire package itself is publicly available. You can go on, uh, you can go online and, and read it in a redacted version for yourself. Which that alone is just so unprecedented. I've, 
um, been involved with and connected to and then ultimately signed many, many FISA packages over the last, you know, 12 or so years. Um, and we just do not talk about these things outside the organization. I think it's a sign of the um, incredibly fraught times we're trying to navigate right now over these issues. Um, let's move on here. Uh, <clears throat> in the days after Comey was fired on May 9th, 2017, mm-hmm. this firing itself triggered a, a firestorm. Um, you opened up on the investigation, a, you know, a, the obstruction case and a, and a, and a, and a counterintelligence case. Mm-hmm. You did this within the FBI, and you wanted to lock this case down. But, you know, now we know, and you, I think you've, you've, you've said this, maybe not so explicitly, you didn't go to the DAG for approval. You had the authority to do it yourself within the FBI. Why not go to the, why not go to the DAG and get mm-hmm. cover? The requirement, when you open an investigation like this, which would be classified as a, what we call a sensitive investigative matter, sim, right? that's right, is that you notify the Department of Justice at a very high level within 15 days. Um, and I, of course, did that. Rod and I discussed this as I was thinking about it. Rod, I informed Rod that we had taken the step, that the cases were now open. Um, so DOJ had uh, almost instantaneous notice, not like we sat around for 15 days, um, and That's no, what you didn't want to do. You didn't want to sit around and no, talk about this. You wanted to open yeah, this. You need, thought it I f- needed to be open. I felt like we needed to move quickly. Um, and again, you know, I'm pretty clear about it in the book. My concern was that I probably would not be around for very long. Um, and I, need, I felt very strongly that the investigation needed to be on as solid fo- a footing as it could possibly be because I had really didn't know who'd be sitting in my chair the next day. Um, this is a pretty chaotic period. <laughs> Yes, that yes, you it was. that you write about in the book, um, and I think there was a lot of confusion, um, and and you know I think one of the things we've 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 thought about as reporters uh, is if if the president is investigating, I mean if 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 Mueller is investigating the president for possibly obstructing justice, mm-hmm. and one of the and the reason you opened on him for obstruction was the firing of Jim Comey. How's Rod not recuse himself? And did Rod ever suggest you recuse yourself? So um, you've asked a great question about Rod. That is a question that only Rod can answer, right? The recusal decision is one that the official has to make, and hopefully it's done on the basis of consultation and following the guidance of ethics officials. I've had a number of those issues of my own to navigate, yeah. and I've, I did so um, uh, in a very clear and and transparent way. So I don't know. I don't know why he's made the decision he did. It did he is, ever suggest that you should recuse yourself? He, in one instance, raised the issue with me, and, and it was based on the infamous photograph, a family photograph that I took during my wife's campaign in 2015 while we were at a swim meet with my kids, and we all happened to be wearing shirts from my wife's campaign. The four of us had matching shirts in one of those really goofy family pictures. Um, so he showed me you the picture. You weren't campaigning. That was at a swim meet. That's right. right. Yeah, there was, I didn't get involved in any campaigning or canvassing, or, or I played no role in the campaign whatsoever. Um, you know, of course, there is the Hatch Act, which lays out very explicit right. rules about what you can and can't do as the spouse of a political candidate if you're a government official. 
Um, I got advice on how to ensure that I didn't run afoul of the Hatch Act, and I followed that advice very carefully. The Hatch Act does not say that you can't wear a button or a T-shirt at some point in your private life when you're not at work. So uh, it really was a non-issue. Unfortunately, it kept coming up. It, yes, it kept coming up, and I think now, obviously, you have the benefit of, of hindsight. Um, and I think, uh, I, I believe the IG found that you handled the the initial recusal properly, right? That's correct. Didn't find anything wrong with that, the recusal and the, and the way you handled it. That's correct. Um, I, I, guess, I guess if you could go back in time, Andy, if you could go back in time, <laughs> would you, if, if, you had, if you had known that, you know, your wife's um, uh, run for office in the Virginia State uh, Legislature yeah. was was going to happen and the Republicans were going to weaponize that, mm-hmm. would you have recused yourself from Hillary going forward? No. 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 Um, no. My decision about the recusal in the case, which of course came very late in the right. case and was at Jim's request. And was, I mean, you realize that, made, that had a bad look to it. If you were gonna, if you should have, rec- if you were going to recuse, you should have done it sooner. Doing it at the end just made it look bad. So, Adam, my own ethics officers, and now the IG, have right. all agreed that there was no reason to recuse from the Clinton case, which I did, wasn't involved in right. until three months after my wife's campaign was had, had failed and was in the past. Um, so, no, I don't think I navigated that issue incorrectly, and I think that my position on that has been validated by those of, who've reviewed it. Um, and I think it's really important, as, you, as we are raise you angry, this again... But are you angry at Jim Comey for making you recuse at the end? I disagreed very strongly with Jim's request. I made that known to him. He felt it was important to do. It wasn't illegal or immoral, and so I followed the director's uh, direction. But I will say, Adam, it's important for me to get this out. Um, this entire idea that I was somehow compromised in my approach to the investigation because of the support that my wife had received from someone else a year earlier is, in, is a false narrative. This is a lie that's been perpetrated for political purposes. So should I have made di- decisions different, differently in my professional life, anticipating that people are likely to lie about this later? That's not the standard for recusal. Well, if I've recently told reporters we don't predict the future. So, uh, but it's clear that you know you, you, it's clear that period in time, you know, now the op you, with with your wife running for a political office and the money she took, that the optics of that haunt, haunted you, and they came back to sure. The, the optics of that haunted me because it was created as pol- uh, in the political warfare that was going on at the time. You can't possibly sit here today and say. Should I make a decision about something that's happening today on the off chance that someone might lie about it a year and a half from now for politics? I mean, that's a, that's a ridiculous proposition. Um, let's switch gears for a second. Sure. <laughs> and uh, move to one of my favorite subjects, uh, Gitmo, <laughs> and, uh, and military commissions and Article Three courts. Uh, you talk about uh, a, a detainee. Um, I believe I've written about this detainee on page 121. And... Sessions, the attorney, former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, refused to bring back to New York to face the face. He didn't want to prosecute this guy in federal court in New York. Um, and this guy had been sitting in a, uh, been de- detained by a foreign partner in a, in a, in a country, uh, we'll call it the Middle East, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess, you know, you, you, there are two points here. You heap a lot of blame, put a lot of blame on Sessions, right? And you go after Sessions in the book. 
you know, but internally from your organization, there's a lot of um, criticism directed at you and into Menger uh, that, that, you know, this guy was picked up in the fall of 2015. Everybody knew where Session, Jeff Sessions stood on this, stood on this issue. Uh, you know, he, he, you know, the Attorney General of the United States didn't believe you should prosecute terrorists in Article Three courts. His position had been known. How come you didn't push that through sooner? I mean, this was an important case. He could have been an important AQ cooperator, right? New York wanted him, right? It's a great terrorism case. I mean, why not? Why not bring him? Why not bring him back sooner and and and, and get this done before Sessions or his team, which have been crying about Gitmo, you know, get a chance to handle this. Um, okay, so a couple things. Yeah. First, for the record, I am not going to confirm who this detainee That's was. Fine. I'm going to respect the uh, the restrictions that the FBI Just has placed upon me. Just respect my reporting. <laughs> so, um, what I will say on this is, is you know, from your extensive reporting on these topics, generally, uh, these are unbelievably complicated and fraught issues. Bringing people back here. Uh, to face charges for their terrorist activity overseas, whether they're Americans uh, or or not uh, U.S. citizens, um, there are a thousand places along that path where these uh, where these efforts can get hung up, they can get delayed, they can they can die completely. Um, there are diplomatic issues. There's of course legal issues, and there's our own internal policy debates about who thinks we should be you know bringing terrorists back to the United States for right. criminal prosecution or not. Um, so, if I am correct in assuming the matter that you're referring to, it is one that suffered from a number of those those issues, right? These things don't happen right. quickly. Were um, you distracted, you think, too, a little bit? No. No? No. Okay. There was a lot of uh, robust conversation around this very topic. And I can certainly understand how people... Listen, the guys on the ground, the agents in the field who... This is the thing that they are working on. They want this to right. happen sooner rather than later. They have a single-minded focus on getting it done, and thank God they do. That's how things get done in this organization. They are they are routinely frustrated and confounded by what they perceive from the field to be, you know, typical bureaucracy, nonsense, politics, whatever that's getting in the way of of uh, the result that they want. It's often a much more complicated answer than just that. Um, I think people made a lot of efforts to get this done. Um, we were not successful in doing it before the new administration came in. But, you know, you shouldn't have to think that with the turnover of an administration that a process that we've been using uh, effectively for so many years is automatically going to be thrown out the window. Because Was it people, thrown out the window? Was that it, essentially? Um, there is no doubt that the attorney general brought a very strong opinion about these matters with him into the job based on, I think, a preconceived kind of understanding about the work that we do is, I think, dated. In why did approach. they, well, that raises a question. Why, why, then why did Sessions agree to bring back, I, I don't know, I think you were still at the FBI, uh, you brought back a terrorist from Spain. He, was, I, he had like, Irish roots, remember? He was extradited to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Does this ring a bell? It's no. kind of crossing wires on a number of different guys for me. But. We'll go back to this detainee for a second and uh-huh. Gitmo in general. Did, mm-hmm. how, how eager was Sessions, how eager was he to throw somebody, bring somebody to Gitmo? You know, I mean, were they looking at every opportunity? <clears throat> Did they want to give this victory to Trump because he had mouthed off about it on the campaign? I don't know that it ever got to a really well-baked plan to send any individual to Gitmo. I think there was a lot of talk about it on the campaign. There's a question that Sessions, that's kind of the, his preference. It has been for many years. 
I think it's another one of those issues that they talked about a lot on the campaign, not understanding the challenges they would have uh, once they were finally in those in those seats trying to get it done. Um, the legislative um, obstacles to bringing anybody there, um, the problems in, in trying to bring those in Gitmo here, funding for um, for detention facilities that might serve that purpose in the United States has been blocked for many years legislatively. So uh, I just think they underestimated what they were dealing with. What was DOD's position on this? What was Mattis? We were always told Mattis was opposed to it. He didn't want to. He didn't want to repopulate the Gitmo. Yeah, you know what? I, I couldn't tell you uh, clearly, Adam. I don't. I'm not. I don't remember exactly where he was on it. Okay. <clears throat> um, uh, Let's move on to uh, back to the Russia investigation, which people seem to be fascinated with, uh, known as Crossfire Hurricane, uh, an ode to the Rolling Stones. Uh, which I can neither confirm nor deny. No, it's not in the book, um, but um, it's, it's uh, among, uh, among FBI officials is known as CH. I've uh, got a question about this. You know... Like I said, let's let's back up a second. You were in this extraordinary period. The directors fired in May of, of 2017. I mean, people, <clears throat> it's chaotic. People are under enormous amount of stress. Um, look, I know you you had lived through some some pretty high profile events. You know, Benghazi. Sure. You know, I I, I would argue the Boston Boston bombing probably surpassed that sure. um, in terms of stress and what you were dealing with, perpetrators trying to find them, mm-hmm. prevent more casualties. This was a horrific, horrific event. Uh, do you think? Do you think in this moment of time when you guys were rushing to open up on the president to lock in this investigation based on everything you had seen, which is it's in some ways an outgrowth of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation? Do you think you panicked? Do you think you panicked an opening? Do you think you think? Do you think cooler heads might have prevailed? Do you think, you know, do you, do you, do you, do you really think that they, the, the Department of Justice um, was going to stop this investigation? I mean, you know, you can take away the prosecutors, but the files always live in the FBI, mm-hmm. and you can't, you're not going to expunge information. Do you, do, do you think you panicked? In this moment, this extraordinary moment, yeah. granted that yep. that <clears throat> that you know you had never seen before, that mm-hmm. the people around you had never seen before. Mm-hmm. I don't think the country has ever seen before. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great question, and um, my honest answer to it is no. I don't think I panicked. I don't think we panicked. Panic is not really thank God, is not really how I react to things. And partially because of those experiences that you just referred to, the Boston bombing, numerous terrorist events, mass shooting events. I mean, we unfortunately have a lot of experience navigating um, challenging facts and under you know, emotional and pressure-filled circumstances. This one was totally different. I get that. Um, but at that time, you fall back on what you know. And my first instinct was, let's go to the investigators, let's pull the team together and ask them, are we in the right place right now with respect to this investigation? There were investigations that we were thinking about closing at that time. Should we close those? Um, Are there other investigations out there that we think we need to get started? um, And should we start those before? 
who knows what happens. I might be gone next week. We all might be reassigned. Um, If this is an actual effort, if the firing of the director was the first step in an effort to throw a wet blanket on an investigative effort that we all believed was valid and necessary, um, then we should try to put it on the stablest foundation possible. Um, I'm not going to tell you that we knew where it would go. We just knew that it needed to be done. Like that's our that's the question for us in that moment. Is there investigation here that needs to happen? Um, and our Despite answer is yes. Your answer was yes, but you know, you're a smart guy. You understood the consequences of that, which we're probably going to upend the country, which has already mm-hmm. upended. We're going to upend it again. Did that occur to you, or that wasn't? That I mean, I, I knew there would be. Um, I knew there would be incredible incredible impact from our decisions on me personally, on the country writ large. But again, Adam, I would say, look, we're in these jobs because we took an oath to defend this nation. Our mission is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. The facts in our hands created a clearly articulable basis to believe that a crime might have been committed or a threat to national security might exist. It was to not have made that decision to start this investigation at that time would have been abandoning our duty. Uh, there are people out there. Uh, maybe they haven't read the uh, Diag, the Domestic Investigations Operations that. Guide, <laughs> which is the uh, it's you know, thrilling. The, it's thrilling. It's the it's the it's it's online. You can get it at fbi.gov, and mm-hmm. it, it and, and it's it, it's a it's the uh, it's the pathway to understanding uh, how the FBI conducts investigations exactly. and what the and, and the necessary predicate to open one. That's right. <clears throat> Your predicate to open this investigation on the president, as you said, you just have to be able to reasonably articulate it, right? That's correct. Facts. Right. Your critics have said, ah, well, you know, he gets on TV and he tells Lester Holt it was Russia. And you had these other, you know, you had this mosaic of information. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they're scoffing at that because it's, quote, unquote, not evidence. Um, it, 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 I, what's the difference in your mind between what people like Mark Meadows, right, and, and others who have said, well, there's no evidence here, right? Your critics have said there's no evidence. There was no evidence to open this investigation, mm-hmm. yet you had, a, you, had a, you had a set of facts that allowed you according mm-hmm. to you know, your, own, your own guidelines. What's the divide there? Can you explain you know, that a little bit? It's kind of surprising to me. And I think, I think that Representative Meadows has some prosecutorial experience in right. his background. So to hear that from someone, from a former prosecutor... It seems that there's an embedded assumption in that criticism, like unless we had to serve a warrant to get it or we got it through some sort of covert or classified means from a foreign partner or something, it's not, it doesn't actually count as evidence. That's simply false. Sometimes you have to just look at the facts that are abundantly clear in front of you and make uh, a decision based on those facts. Right, and not a crime, and you don't have to necessarily, I think what he's alluding to and others alluding you didn't have evidence of a crime per se. No, no. You, you don't need evidence of a crime. Right. You need an articulable factual basis to believe that a crime might have been committed. It is a standard far lower than probable cause or proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just to say, like, this is the initiation of an investigative effort. Um, we're not convicting anyone with that decision. We're not throwing anybody in jail because we've opened a case on them. We're not indicting anybody. We're simply stating that with the facts we have, we now have an obligation to go forward and investigate. That's what the FBI should be doing, right? There's been a lot of talk lately about, oh, well, shouldn't it be different because it's the president of the United States? Or shouldn't you have stepped back and thought about it differently and been more careful? No, the FBI needs a clear and consistent standard to apply to everyone. 
Those sorts of qualitative decisions should be made at the Department of Justice. The FBI should investigate when we have facts that reach the, the declared um, uh, threshold for an investigation, and we should refrain from doing so if we don't have those facts, period. You know, there were, on May 16, 2017, there were, there were basically two, two pivotal meetings, right? There was one in the morning, right, right. with, uh, I believe, with you, uh, Tosh, who is Rod's uh, national security advisor, Rod Rosenstein's national security advisor, and his chief of staff, um, Jim, Jim Crowell. Mm-hmm. And then later, on the second day, there's, an, there's a second meeting, right, with you, your, your, your lawyer, uh, Lisa Page, that same group, plus um, uh, Stu Goldberg and, uh, I believe, uh, Scott Schools. Uh, um, who, in these two meetings, who else, obviously you write about pushing for the special counsel, you thought Sorry. it was really important to get done. Mm-hmm. Who else was pushing for this special counsel among the select group of people who were privy to what was going on? Yeah, so I, I, it's hard for me to go back and parse out I can't won't parse out who exactly said what. Um, but I was not the only voice in the room that felt very strongly that, that the special counsel needed to be appointed quickly. Um, the, the one uh, uh, other kind of strong opinion in that direction that I remember is Jim Crowell, um, who was at the time, I think, serving as um, Rod's, uh, chief, of staff. Rod's chief of staff. Um, Why did he think it needed to be done? You know, again, in, Adam, in, in retrospect, it's hard for me to sort right. out or say, like, what he was thinking. But some of the things that we were talking about were um, we had a briefing in front of Congress coming up to update them on the status of the case right. and, the, and the steps that we had taken. Um, Rod was totally supportive of that briefing and the, and the decision to do it. Um, he was, was very clear about wanting to do it with me, which I thought was the right thing to do. Um, but I made it clear to him that, you know, if he sat in front of those representatives who were all, people were all calling for, many people were calling for the appointment of a special counsel, and he needed to be able to say that he had done it or here's why he didn't. And if the answer was he hadn't done it yet and wasn't going to do it, you know, I told him I thought he was going to get a lot of pressure about that. Um, and I remember Jim being um, kind of saying some of the same things. We talked about earlier uh, the fact that to placate Congress, you know, the FBI DOJ handed over an enormous amount of material to to legislators regarding ongoing investigations and closed investigations, referring to Hillary Clinton. It seems like this was done to. It seems like this was done at least when Rod came into the job to a Rod protect Rod's job, right? Give Congress what it needed but also to protect Mueller, right? Because the fear was if Rod was fired, then Mueller, you know, then Mueller mm-hmm. would be exposed, that Rod was you know, this buffer um, as the sole person who could fire uh, Mueller since Sessions was recused. I don't know, looking back on this, you think, do you think, you think was all of this worth it? I mean, you know, it seems like you, know, you, gave, you gave away the farm to, prote- to protect Mueller. What if I just said to you, so what? What if they had, so what if they had fired Mueller? So what? The FBI would have mm-hmm. continued to investigate. Agents would have continued to investigate. Mm-hmm. Was all of this worth it to protect Mueller in the end? I mean, yeah. we don't have a final report, but boy, mm-hmm. you know, D- D- it seems like DOJ gave away the farm to protect this guy. So I will say you have found a question I have not been asked yet. Um, 
That that is definitely one I have not thought about. Um, I don't know that I agree with the premise that all of that information had to be turned over to protect Mueller. Do I think it's worth it to protect Mueller? Absolutely. Why? Why? Because Why? I think that these are matters that should be investigated. Right. Go back to May May tenth when we started right. in our own minds, right. like contemplating this very this very issue. Um, these are serious matters. I think you actually did it, by the way, on May 15th, but I, I haven't nailed that down. So we, right. So we start talking with the team yeah. about what's your assessment on literally the day after Jim's fired, and then it, it plays out over the course of the next seven or eight days. Um, these are serious matters that needed to be investigated. They couldn't reasonably be investigated by the FBI alone. Uh, we learned that through the Clinton email case, right? Had we had an independent counsel in, in the Clinton email case, things might have been very different in July and in October. Um, so that was the problem I was trying to avoid. Part of my reason of telling Rod I thought he needed to appoint a special counsel. Once we got one, and we got the best one we could have gotten, I think it's important to allow that, that team to do its work and report its findings in a way that's independent and apolitical. Was anybody making an argument against Appointing a special counsel? Um, you don't have to say names. But, yeah, no. I mean, do you recall that? I, there were, I think the room, you know, there were definitely people in the room that weren't convinced that we needed to do it on the timeline that I was pushing for. Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I can't, I, you know, there was a lot that was said and a lot that was unsaid. So it's, it's possible, but I don't remember that. Um, what are you most proud of? If people think about Andrew G. McCabe, G. Man, you know who, you know, what, what, what's your, what's your legacy? Because you've got clearly, you know, the book end of this, the book end of this took a turn yeah. you didn't, you didn't expect. Course, I mean, what is, yeah. what do you think your legacy is at the end? Well, appear? you know, of course, I hope it's not that, right? I mean, to serve twenty-one years in the FBI um, and then to leave and be branded unfairly, uh, I believe, as a liar is just um, its sickening. I mean, it, it, it troubles me so deeply even to this day. It never gets really any better. Um, so, I look, um, that bothers me, but ultimately I am confident in standing by the decisions I made and the things that I did. Um, I'm completely fair for people to disagree with those decisions, if somebody wants to come in later and say, hey, you should have thought about it differently or you're not very smart or you made the wrong call here, that's fine. I mean, the people are certainly entitled to those opinions. Um, what, I, what I hope resonates out of um, the work that we all did, it wasn't just me, right? It was an entire team of people who worked incredibly hard on some unbelievably challenging things that people really hadn't thought about before, um, we tried to navigate those those challenges um, with an eye on our role, our authorities, our mission. What are we supposed to do here? How do we protect the American people and uphold the Constitution? I think we made some very tough decisions under tough circumstances. Many of us have suffered greatly as a, personally as a result of those decisions. Um, I would do that. I would do it all again tomorrow. Um, I really would. I think that I've said this in a couple of places, like if as a deputy director of the FBI or acting director in any of those jobs, if you're not prepared to get fired for making the decision that you think is right, you should not be in that job. So you know, I wish it hadn't happened, but, um, but I'd make the same decisions again. 
What do you think Mueller's legacy will be when this is when this is over? And a, do you think Mueller is perturbed yeah. by uh, Trump's uh, 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 Twitter attacks? Relentless Twitter attacks on the angry Democrats. You know, I, I think he probably laughs about them. I mean, this is a guy who gets perturbed if you wear a checkered shirt, so it's a hard, hard one to judge. Um, but he's not the kind of guy that takes this. You know, he stays focused on what he's doing. He lets this noise play out around him, and he doesn't get involved in it. Um, Did you see, is, is that strength. the way he operated at the FBI? Absolutely. I mean, with yeah. all the political issues you're facing, the, the underwear bomber, how, mm-hmm. how that was turned into a, you know, political attacks on, on the left. You know, you wanted to read yeah. a guy's rights. Did he just sort of tune all that out? I mean, he's definitely aware of it, yeah. right? He monitors those things. But I think his, his preference, at least as I observed it, was for us to stay as far out of that fray as we could, and then we could continue doing our work as on a, you know, in, a, in as clean and uh, purposeful a way as possible. What I learned in my own time was that, um, you know, the Hill came to play such an active role in the work that we were doing. And we needed to be more interactive with, particularly our overseers on the Intel committees. We needed to be a little more proactive in sharing information about a national crisis or a mass shooting or something that just have how we were handling right. you know, a, a, an attempted terrorist attack. And by being a little bit more transparent, open with what we were doing, we could you know, build support on the Hill instead of constantly fighting our way out of a hole. So I think there's a balance there. Um, Sadly, I think the Bureau has regressed on that front. Um, as a reporter yeah. covering the Bureau, I think we benefited some by that, that transparency yeah. uh, and you know, the FBI providing clear and accurate information after shootings. Um, and exposing us to, uh, 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 you know, leadership within within the bureau, you know, whether it was in a gaggle or sure. press. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the bureau has stuck its head in the sand um, at, at the moment, and maybe maybe rightly so. Um, do you do you think that you know? Speaking of Mueller, do you do you think do you, do you think Mueller will provide a lengthy report to the American people? I mean, well, obviously to the Department of Justice, mm-hmm. or is he just taciturn and it's not his style? Do you, do, what, what do you envision? I'm just, I know you, you're guessing yeah. at this point, but what do you envision? Totally guessing, so yeah. I wait to see like everybody else does. But I, I think that he'll provide a robust, detailed report to the Attorney General. Um, you know, the idea that he would give the absolute minimal information required, like... We, th- we recommend, you know, charges against these people and none against these people, something like that, is just, I think, kind of silly after, you know, two years' worth of work. Right. He wouldn't, if he was going to recommend charges, he would have charged, right? Yeah. And I think he'll explain what he thinks about those people he investigated. Now, what we all ultimately see from a report like that is a much bigger question. Um, you know, the, the department has some tough decisions to make, and I think, as we've discussed, they've to some extent, back themselves into a corner, at least in terms of what they'll share with the Hill. Um, I think, my own personal opinion, I think they should share very robustly with the Hill, and I think they should share with the American people as, as expansively as they can, acknowledging that there's all kinds of things that will mitigate against, you know, there are going to be details that are classified or sensitive, there will be privileged material in there, things like that that aren't appropriate to share. Um, but I analogize it to the way that we handled the intelligence community assessment um, about you know, our report assessing 
the Russian meddling in the 2016 campaign. I mean, that document in its original form was one of the most highly classified, compartmentalized things that I've ever read. Um, we were still able to come up with an unclassified version that we shared with the public that at least gave them our conclusions and the basis for those conclusions. So I'd like to see that here. Uh, so, you know, what's next? Typically, somebody retires from the FBI as a deputy director. You go, you get a you know, seven-figure job <laughs> at a, some hedge fund. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to happen now. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, what, do you, what is next? What are the next know. 12 months look like? Yeah, I don't know. Um, been, as we said, really focused on the book and kind of getting the story out. Uh, it's important to me to be able to continue speaking about the FBI. I really think there's an education that needs to take place in this country. People don't understand. As much as you know, people talk about the FBI constantly, right. it's kind of an icon in American life. They don't really know like, who we are and, and, and how we do the work we do. I think that will help. Um, it'll help push back against many of these false, completely false narratives about FBI corruption and, and plotting coups and all the rest of that nonsense. So uh, I hope to remain active in that conversation, um, and we'll see. Just taking it one day at a time. Um, you're, you're under investigation. Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. is, mm-hmm. is looking at whether you um, should be charged with in front of a grand jury and charged with a 1001, you know, lying to a federal investigator. This seems to be going on a long time. For a, a line to a, for a for a thousand and one a thousand and one case, we're up on a we're up on a we're up on more than a, we're reaching a year on this thing. Yeah. Any sense of when there's going to be a conclusion? I really don't. Um, I agree with your assessment. It seems like it's been going on for a long time. Um, you know, we've had a number of exchanges. My attorneys have with the prosecutor's office, and uh, so we we wait to see what happens. Um, you think the U.S. attorney's in a pickle? You know, it would seem they probably are. I, I don't know. A declination know. could really anger the president. I, you know, there's all kinds of ways to speculate about that. Here's what I'll say. Um, if they are guided by the law and the facts, which I, you know, I give them the benefit of the doubt that that's how they'll make the decision, right. and if that is how they make the decision, I don't have anything to worry about. Um, however, if their decision is impacted by politics, if it's impacted by, you know, the president's tweets and pressure from who knows where, then um, nobody knows what will happen. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. It's great. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.